Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, where we connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars to think about public policy and improve civic engagement. If you're listening to this during the month of February, there is still time to apply for AEI's 2024 Summer Honors Program. This annual program is the best way for undergraduates to get involved with our think tank and join our growing collegiate network. The Summer Honors Program is especially relevant for today's episode of this podcast because today's episode features a conversation between Collegiate Network member Jake Kirshen from UNC Chapel Hill with AEI Scholar and the Institute's Director of Economic Policy Studies, Mike Strain, about a variety of current economic challenges and public policy questions. I say that the program is relevant for this conversation because Jake was one of Mike Strain's students in the 2023 Summer Honors Program. So if you're a current college student or you just graduated in December of 23 or coming up in May of 24, you can apply for SHP at AEI.org SHP. Applications are due at the beginning of March. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Jake Kirshen, and I'm a junior at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, studying political science and economics. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Dr. Michael Strain, who is the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. As the Director of Economic Policy Studies at AEI, Dr. Strain oversees the Institute's work in economic policy, financial markets, international trade and finance, tax and budget policy, welfare economics, healthcare policy, and related areas. Before joining AEI, Dr. Strain worked in the Center for Economic Studies at the U.S. Census Bureau and in the Macroeconomics Research Group at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He holds a PhD in economics from the Cornell University. Dr. Strain, thank you for joining with me. Thank you for having me. So my first question kind of touches on um, the general macroeconomy. 2023 was a tough year for the average consumer, and uh, the Biden administration has been proud of this. The Biden administration has touted the success of Bidenomics, yet Americans have been hit by high inflation for much of his presidency. At the same time, the president's likely general election opponent, Donald Trump, has stated how he will implement a flat 10% tariff on all imports, which will hurt economic growth. Where are these candidates missing or getting wrong when it comes to their economic policies? <laughs> well, a lot. When it comes to the issue of inflation, you know, inflation is 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 something that, that we think of as, as kind of being the Fed's job. So we have a central bank. The central bank is the Federal Reserve. The central bank uh, controls monetary policy, executes, you know, decides, formulates, executes monetary policy um, with two goals. One goal is uh, maintaining kind of maximum sustainable employment. And the other goal is maintaining uh, low and stable price inflation. And when evaluating fiscal policy, when evaluating changes in taxes, changes in spending, new government programs, laws that Congress might pass, you know, we don't typically think about their inflationary impact uh, because we uh, you know, kind of leave that to the Fed, uh, a, a particular policy 
you know, set by the president or, or a law that Congress passed um, were to were to increase the rate of inflation, we would just say, okay, the Fed's gonna the Fed's gonna deal with that, and and that wouldn't be you know a reason to be in favor of the law or opposed opposed to the law. But we have been living through this period where, uh, as you say, we've had you know really rapid inflation. Uh, the rate of inflation as measured by the consumer price index peaked above nine percent, um, and that's you know something we haven't seen since the nineteen seventies, and so that's you know put put price inflation kind of front and center in people's in people's minds. You know, inflation has come down quite a bit by some measures is still pretty high, uh, at least high enough uh, to be concerned about it, high enough to give the Federal Reserve you know some pause. Uh, before cutting interest rates in the first half of this year. Um, and, you know, I don't see either uh, President Trump or President Biden, you know, being very helpful on this front. The The way they would be helpful would be by uh, fiscal consolidation, by enacting a series of tax increases and enacting a series of spending cuts that would kind of fix or at least make progress on fixing the United States structural budget deficit. But both President Trump and President Biden agree that the primary drivers of the long-term deficit and the primary drivers of our long-term debt, the Medicare and Social Security program, shouldn't be, shouldn't be touched. And they actually agree quite a bit on tax revenue. I mean, they agree that the bottom 98% of households should not see their taxes go up. And so that is putting upper pressure on prices because large budget deficits are are uh, stimulatory in, in, in a Keynesian sense. I think there's another kind of angle on this. So when, when, when we talk about inflation, we're talking about the rate at which the general price level is increasing. You know, prices in general are going up. But, uh, you know, we might be concerned about specific prices as well. President Trump launched a trade uh, war, very high uh, tariff rates uh, on Chinese imports. President Biden hasn't hasn't taken uh, those tariff rates down. You know, that increases the price of imports. And because it in- increases the price of intermediate goods uh, in production for domestic manufacturers, it increases the, the, the price of uh, uh, some domestically manufactured goods as well. President Trump is talking about substantially increasing tariff rates, um, and that would cause the prices of, of certain goods uh, to go up. He's also talking about launching a massive deportation effort, and that would cause the wages and prices of some goods and services to go up. Uh, if you wanted fresh produce, that would be more expensive. If you wanted a hotel room, that would be more expensive, that sort of thing. Um, and so even though those protectionist policies uh, are you know, unlikely to increase the rate of inflation, um, they are likely to lead to price spikes for certain goods and services that are that are important to households. So... Bad news across the board. <laughs> you touched a little bit on inflation. I wanted to go a little bit further. Um, we saw January that there was a record number of jobs added, more than that was expected by most economists, at over 350,000. Like you stated before, inflation continued to slow, although still above the Fed's target rate. 
Are these developments a significant indicator that the American economy is headed toward a so-called soft landing? And how might the occurrence of a soft landing, or lack thereof, affect voters this November? Well, I think they're, they're if anything, they suggest that the economy uh, is in for a no-landing scenario uh, rather than a soft-landing scenario. Uh, but to, to unpack that a little bit, you know, the widespread expectation of economists, policymakers, I think, has been that in order to get uh, the rate of inflation back down to normal levels, we would have to see uh, a big increase in the unemployment rate that would be associated with, uh, you know, most likely a mild recession. And, you know, the reason for that is the kind of usual way monetary policy works. The Fed raises interest rates that reduces the demand for goods and services uh, in interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy. Um, So your credit card uh, interest rate goes up. So you, you know, put less stuff on your credit card. Mortgage rates go up. So you so fewer people buy houses. If fewer people are buying houses, that has downstream effects because people spend a lot of money to set up a new house and that sort of thing. Um, And so when kind of demand in the economy cools off, then that leads employers to stop hiring. It leads some employers to lay workers off. Those workers who have been laid off now have reductions in their income, so they spend less. And you're in a situation where where demand throughout the economy cools, prices come down, the unemployment rate goes up, that sort of that sort of story. And what we've seen instead is uh, really substantial reductions in the rate of inflation uh, without an increase in in the unemployment rate. And that has you know really. Uh, you know, fueled hope for what's described as a soft landing, which is a scenario where you know the economy is still growing, but it's growing at a relatively slow pace, a pace that's slow enough that inflation can come back down to the Fed's two percent target and stay there, and that the economy can avoid a recession. Um, so that's. That's one possible scenario. Uh, a second possible scenario is that the economy enters a recession. And a third scenario is that uh, the economy just stays hot and inflation you know, stays above the Fed's target. Nothing catastrophic, um, but you know, an inflation rate of 3% or something like that, you know, kind of roughly what we have now, uh, uh, according to some measures. Um, and we continue to add more jobs than is sustainable over a, a long period of time. The economy continues to grow above its uh, sustainable uh, long-term rate of growth. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a question about whether the Fed should raise interest rates. Um, certainly, the Fed's not going to cut interest rates as many times as investors think. Probably not going to cut interest rates as many times as the Fed itself thinks. And the big question uh, is which of those three scenarios is going to materialize. That's a very strange economy, um, arguably the strangest economy we've had since the demobilization from World War II. And it's you know hard to know which which of those three uh, scenarios is most likely. Um, you asked about the jobs report. The jobs report really suggests that uh, it's that last scenario that may be the most likely, the scenario where the economy reaccelerates or 
at least doesn't slow down um and uh that uh you know creates a, a, a scenario where the fed may need to raise interest rates some more or at least not cut um you know we've seen that play out a little bit uh yeah, markets uh, expected that the Fed was going to start reducing yeah, the federal funds rate, its policy interest rate, in March. And the Fed chairman kind of poured water, uh, cold water all over that. Markets have changed their expectations. You know, now there's a question about whether or not the first cuts will come in May. Will the first cuts come in June? And if we continue to have jobs reports like the one you mentioned, then you know that pattern is going to continue, and uh, rate cuts are going to kind of keep being pushed. Uh, later in the year, and you know, maybe maybe we don't have any at all. You know, I think it's I think it's hard to say, um, uh, but uh, that jobs report showed uh, a labor market last month that was you know very strong, and really strong in an unsustainable way. The economy can't continue to add three hundred fifty thousand jobs a month. That's not sustainable, and so. You know, that suggests that if anything, the economy is too hot, not 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 too cold. Thank you. Um, still kind of touching on some election economic problems. Um, in the past, we've seen a lot of talk about income inequality and a rising wealth gap in America. We, and we will probably hear more rhetoric about that later this year. Um, in recent pieces, you've refuted the idea of, re- of increasing taxes on the wealthy to combat income inequality. You've also cited how real income has grown for most Americans, especially low-wage workers, and how it's risen over the past few decades, and that billionaires contribute trillions of dollars to the economy through job creation, innovation, and more. Yet Jamie Dimon, chairman and CEO of JPMorgan Chase and a billionaire himself, said in a recent January event hosted by the Bipartisan Policy Center that taxes should be cut on low-income Americans and should be raised on the wealthy. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I uh, what I am opposed to are pu- I'm opposed to punitive taxes on a small number of people. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about wealth taxes or you know large you know taxes on on billionaires. I think I think in general we should uh, increase tax revenue and we should increase tax revenue in a progressive fashion so that people who have higher incomes, pay relatively more in taxes than people who have lower incomes. Now, that's the system that we have. Uh, the top 1% pay more uh, taxes as a share of their income than, than any other group. And you know, roughly half of households don't pay any income taxes uh, because um, uh, we've exempted them from, from, from paying income tax. And then there are a bunch of taxes, a bunch of households that are, you know, uh, even lower in the income distribution that pay that pay negative taxes, that get that get uh, checks from from the government through the income tax system through through uh, refundable tax credits, and so you know I I think I think we should kind of maintain that that basic uh, that basic structure. Um, we should not use the tax code uh, as a way to punish any group of Americans. We should not be uh, punishing success. You know, there are a lot of people in the public square who they think that billionaires are a problem. Uh, you know, you, you hear the, the, the phrase, every billionaire is a policy mistake. There are some people who want to use the tax code to kind of go after that group. That's what I find objectionable. 
you know, the idea that that we should focus on the very top of the income distribution, I also think just doesn't just doesn't work, you know, arithmetically. If you if you want to address the nation's long term uh, budget challenges, there isn't enough money in the top one tenth of one percent to do that. Um, you have to involve the the kind of vast middle class, and you have to involve them by either raising their taxes or by reducing the amount of uh, uh, benefits that they get from the Social Security and Medicare program. There's there's just kind of no way around around that. Like you know, similarly, you can't just get all the money from the safety net. There's not enough money that goes to the bottom twenty percent uh, to. Uh, address that problem either. I think it's uh, very sensible to be looking, you know, the income tax system is broken. uh, And I think it's very sensible to be looking uh, to um, other tax bases uh, in in order to generate some revenue, uh, a carbon tax, a progressive consumption tax, you know, kind of things of things of that nature. That's some high level thoughts on the tax system. More on the public finance kind of realm, a pressing issue that policymakers have a hard time addressing and that the public, I think, has an even harder time understanding is the national debt and the debt crisis that we currently have. The Congressional Budget Office in their new economic outlook currently estimates that the U.S. will add nearly $1.6 trillion to the debt at the end of fiscal year 2024, and that figure will continue to increase year by year by billions. What impact does accumulating this tremendous debt have on the average American, and how might it affect younger generations like mine? Well, that's an excellent question. You know, think about two different types of economic problems. You can open your front door, and there's a bear standing on the other side of your front door, and the bear wants to like burst through the door and you know uh, kill you and your family. Call that a bear at the door kind of problem, <laughs> right? Like everything is fine before the bear shows up. You know, and then everything is is not fine. You're you're all you're all dead. Um, another type of uh, problem is a termites in the woodwork problem, where every day, you know, every week, things aren't much worse than the day before, or the week before. You don't really notice in your kind of day to day life that anything is wrong. But you know, every day, little by little, the termites are weakening the kind of foundations of your house. You know, at some point, your house just becomes kind of a rotted, you know, uninhabitable structure, right? Our political uh, class seems to want to treat the debt as a bear-at-the-door problem. Um, But it's much more of a termites-in-the-woodwork problem. And, you know, what it does is, you know, leads to... Uh, less private investment and it's not like there's a whole lot less private investment in you know 2023 relative to 2023 or whatever right it's not there's no there's no big kind of dramatic change from year to year but you know there's just this kind of gradual downward pressure on private investment that over a 20 or 30 year period really accumulates into into big into big reductions um, and that leads to uh, a less productive workforce, and that leads to workers who are earning lower wages than they otherwise would, 
in an economy that is less dynamic and that creates uh, you know fewer jobs or a different type of job different types of jobs that it otherwise would and less dynamism lower wages you know mean lower lower incomes for households and uh, that you know means lower living standards less prosperity um, less innovation than there otherwise uh, would be and that's that's the problem that's the problem you know it's a it's a it's a serious problem I mean policymakers should take you know medium term longer term prosperity very seriously but they don't there are other problems uh, as well that I think are quite important we're coming up on a moment where we're gonna spend more money on interest payments servicing the debt that we spend on national defense. We spend a lot of money on on debt service, on interest payments to people who hold our debt. And that crowds out you know, political space, budget space to do other things. Um, it crowds out political space and budget space to have uh, policies that invest in workers, that invest in children, um, and that increase economic opportunity and that strengthen the safety net. You know, another you know, potential challenge uh, is that you know, sometimes we really do need to borrow. So we really needed to borrow during World War II. We really needed to borrow uh, during the uh, you know, really worst of the COVID pandemic, like March of 2020 when governors were instituting uh, restrictions on business activity. And, you know, it's not, it's not obvious to me that if, um, you know, another kind of crisis were to emerge uh, next year, whether we'd be able to respond to it adequately, given the size of the deficit right now, um, given the, the size of the debt right now. And so there is a kind of crisis management component to this as well. You know, I said that it's more of a termites in the woodwork problem than it is a bear at the door problem. And all three of the things I just said are termites in the woodwork problem. But there is a cons- there's a reasonable concern that it could be a bear at the door problem too. You know, right now there's not really an alternative to uh, U.S. treasuries if you're looking for uh, essentially risk-free bonds. But that might not always be the case. And... You know, as the debt grows and grows, investors, you know, might start increasing the degree to which they're concerned about getting paid back. Uh, and, you know, that might not be a gradual process. I mean, it could be, you know, what's the, you know, the famous line, how'd you go bankrupt? Well, slowly and then suddenly. <laughs> investors that losing confidence in the United States' ability to, to pay its financial obligations could, you know, accumulate slowly and then suddenly. And, you know, then we'd be in real hot water. So there are all sorts of reasons why uh, we need to put the trajectory of uh, the uh, debt, uh, the size of the debt relative to annual GDP on a downward downward trajectory. For our final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot. <laughs> Would you like to narrow that down for me? I mean, anything that you have to say will probably help any of the many college students listening to this. Oh, my gosh. What do I know now that I didn't know when I was in college? 
other than maybe buying Apple stock at the at the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to think about things that are not in my personal life, which is where <laughs> most of where most of uh, where my mind uh, immediately goes. You know, I think uh, I think when I was in college, you know, everything kind of you know work kind of occurred in spurts, right? You know, get the paper written, study for the exam, yep. turn in the homework. You know, that sort of stuff. I think that uh, that's not the best way to work. I think when I was in college, it would have been better for me to treat college more like a job mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, you get up every day and you kind of work all day. And some days you work harder, some days you, you work less hard. But, you know, your job is to, you know, study and, you know, don't try to kind of cram it all in. You know the week of the exam. Uh, that's something that I that I think I appreciate much better now than I did when I was when I was in college myself. Um, a lot of the work I do is very very much like being in college. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not I'm not turning in papers to a to a teacher anymore. I'm turning them into an editor uh, or whoever. But um, it'll be better for me if I worked more that way now as well. So taking college is a bit more serious, a bit more disciplined when it comes to the work you have to do in college, you'd have to say? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Strain. This was a great interview. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.